I do not preach evangelistic hellfire and brimstone sermons on Sunday mornings, as you are well aware. Almost every single one of us, if not every single one of us, are already Christians. If we were to have an evangelistic service, it would be a Sunday night service. I would take that as an opportunity to preach a more evangelistic service for those who are outside of Christ, not knowing Christ. But we don't have a Sunday night. I pattern what I do on Sunday mornings. And, and this question has come up all through my ministry. Years ago, somebody asked the same question. Why don't you ever preach a hellfire and brimstone message? Well, I do get pretty animated at times, as you're aware. But if you recall in the scriptures, Jesus had gone home to Nazareth and he went to the synagogue as was his custom. Okay? My custom is to be in church. If you don't see me in church, it's probably because I'm in the hospital. There have been times that I've been up here already in my six years here with you that I've said I love y'all, but I'm not going to come out and talk to you. I'm going to leave this way because I don't feel well. But I'm still here. Uh, I have only missed a few times in my life. And those few times that I missed caused the whole week to just be skewed. Uh, but Jesus, on that occasion, as was his custom, went to the synagogue. It says they gave him the scroll. He opened the scroll and he read. And then he sat down and explained. That's my understanding of my role to take the Word of God, to read a portion of it, and then to explain it, to teach it. And so my model of ministry is not one of, of an evangelist, it's one of being a, a teacher. Uh, and that's why even the closing slide that we have each Sunday says, we enter to worship, we depart to serve. The task of making new Christians is not just mine. It's for all of us. And all of us are called to go out into the world as we are doing the things that we normally do on a daily basis and make disciples. Nowhere in Scripture is that solely the task given to one who is ordained to be a preacher. It is for all who are a part of the ministry of all believers, the priesthood of all believers. So I just wanted to share that with you because it was, again, a conversation I had just this week. Now, last Sunday, the question that we examined was, are we slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness? Because here is the reality. The reality is we are not free. That is, we're not free unless we are free in Christ. In fact, I shared that the question Paul has placed before us is simply, are you willing to be a slave? He asks what Paul does in the second half of Romans 6. It's to draw out the logic of our conversion, as he did in the first half of Romans 6, by drawing out the logic of our baptism. And so he asks not once but twice, don't you know? 
These are things you should know, and as a result of what you should know, here's what and how it should affect you. Since through baptism we are united with Christ, and as a consequence are dead to sin and alive to God, how can we possibly want to live in sin? And through conversion, we offered ourselves to God to be His slaves, and as a consequence, we've committed ourselves to obedience. Then how can we possibly claim freedom to sin? You see, Paul's basic question is this. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him or her, or even what? You become slaves to what you obey. What controls you? What you determine to be the number one priority. Self-surrender leads inevitably to slavery. Whether we thus become slaves to sin or, and that leads to death by the way, or we become slaves to obedience which leads to righteousness. And so as I brought my message to a close last Sunday, I shared that we struggle within. And it's a struggle with sin. I shared with you the important truth that lies behind the whole final section of chapter 7. It depicts the hopeless struggle of people who are trying to do it on their own. Have you noticed? Have you been to a bookstore lately? I mean, they're hard to find now because of how much is online. But I went in Barnes, uh, Barnes & Noble that I was familiar with where the whole back corner used to be religious books, Bibles, commentaries. I mean, there were one, two, three, there were four racks, both sides, plus the back wall that were all religious books. That same bookstore now has a portion of one wall, very small portion, and two shelves, both sides, that aren't anywhere near as long as the other ones were. In the same time, you know what replaced it? Self-help. Self-help books. We have a society that is struggling with understanding that they're, they're filled with problems and issues and they're seeking help, but they're trying to do it on their own. They're trying to be saved by living to the best of their ability under the law. Now don't get me wrong, they're right to look to the law for moral guidance, but wrong to look to it for any kind of saving power. You see, it's the struggle living with the not yet as a part of reality. Though we've died to sin, we still have the struggle within. And so we find ourselves with Paul not understanding our own actions. I mean, I was there this week. Why did I do that? That was so stupid of me. I know better than that. You know? Little things that we do that we pause and we reflect and we say, you know, I, I didn't really want to do that. I shouldn't be doing that. Not that it was a major gross problem. But those little things that we know that we would be much better people if we would just get them out of our lives. In my case, 
issues that lead toward struggling with depression. Self-doubts. And so, we, we find ourselves actually doing the very things that we hate. So Paul closed that chapter with some good news of hope. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I shared that it's what John Stott has referred to as the two cries of the heart. The first, wretched man that I am, with its question, who will deliver me? The second, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The former is not so much a heart-rending cry from the depths of despair as it is a cry of longing, which ends with a question mark. The second is a cry of confidence and thanksgiving, which ends with an exclamation mark. Yet both are cries of the same person. And so what application can be made? Where do we go from here? Where does Paul go from here? And he goes to what we know of as the 8th chapter of Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus, Christ Jesus from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. May God add His blessing to our reading of this word this morning. Look at the last line again. I mean, does that bring you hope? That he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, who was it that raised Christ Jesus from the dead? God the Father. Jesus Christ, God the Son, will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, who dwells in you. All three persons of the Godhead, right there, coming, to help us have victory over sin. 
our recently departed brother in Christ, Jack Cottrell, longtime teacher at Cincinnati Bible Seminary. In his commentary on Romans, he wrote this. For many people, Romans 8 is the high point of the Bible, especially because of its emphasis on the Christian's assurance of victory over all opposing forces. And he goes on to note that more than one commentator has pointed out to how this chapter begins with no condemnation and ends in verses 38 and 39 with no separation. And Jack concludes by saying, it's truly the logical climax of the gospel of grace. So here's the image for us to focus on today. Paul's pretty clear in making a, a distinction. It is not that we are not guilty. Are you hearing me? It's not that we're not guilty. He emphasized that all fall short of the glory of God. He emphasizes that all have sinned. We are guilty. I am a sinner. I've got that posted on my Facebook as my basic description of myself. I am a sinner who happens to be saved from the penalty of death because of what Christ Jesus has done. But I can't say I'm not a sinner. John says, you say you don't sin, you're lying. And the truth isn't in you. <clears throat> you see, in the midst of our intense spiritual struggle with sin, in which we sometimes on the losing are on the losing end, this promise is that we don't have to fear that our forgiveness is in jeopardy. Christ has already secured this for us on the cross. And while the first four verses of this chapter include a reference to justification, the absence of a penalty, the paragraph actually seems to be written in terms of what we think of as sanctification. The work that you and I are called to do. Our overcoming of sin's power and the importance of each of us to decide to live a holy life through the Spirit. And you see that in verse 2 and again in verse 4. These verses thus emphasize freedom from both sin's penalty and sin's power. Beginning the chapter with the idea of Therefore, Paul wants us to know that a conclusion is being drawn, most likely from the reference to the saving work of Christ in verse 25a of chapter 7. And the word now points to the same event. So we could say, now in view of what Christ has done, there is no con now no condemnation. And the word condemnation used only here, and twice in chapter 5 or 16 and 18, it's a judicial, it's a forensic term. Remember the emphasis that I placed on the penalty phase? We are guilty. We've been adjudicated guilty. 
But now Paul is emphasizing that when the judge's sentence is made, not only as pronounced, but as carried out, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And keeping that sentence within the overall context, the phrase for Paul identifies to whom this wonderful blessing applies. Namely, those who have entered into the saving union with Christ described in chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Those who have been baptized into Christ's death. The point of the verse is this. Even though sin still lives in our bodies, causing us at times to do sinful things that we hate, we can be assured that those sins will not condemn us because Christ has already died for them and we belong to Christ and all we have to do is remorsefully repent. Those aren't synonyms. Repent does not mean feel remorseful. I can be sorry all day long and not have it do a bit of good. I can be sorry all day long that I said something that offended Rich. And it won't be of any value until I do something, I repent, I change my course of behavior, and I seek out Rich and I say, man, I did something to you that I am truly sorry for. And I'm not going to do it again. Repentance does not mean saying I'm sorry. Repentance means because I'm sorry, I'm going to do something about it. The point of the verse is that we, living in our bodies, which cause us at times to do sinful things we hate, we belong to Christ who has the ability because of what He did. Because we are justified by His blood back in chapter 5 verse 9. He has the ability to step in and say, Yes, Father, Chauncey, Chauncey's guilty. But I fulfilled the penalty phase already on the cross. So he doesn't have to go to the cross. Listen to me. No disaster. No tribulation suffered in this life. Should ever be interpreted as a punishment sent by God. And some people are inclined to do that. I heard somebody one day say to a young lady after she had gone through a miscarriage, well, you need to figure out what God is trying to teach you by this. And I quickly, I quickly pulled her aside and I said, if God is teaching you anything, it's that He is crying right now with you. He's hurting right now with you. I'm almost into a hellfire and brimstone there. But here's the point. 
As long as we remain faithful and loyal and in a believing relationship with God, there is no damnation to eternal hell that awaits us after death. And even though the sting of death, the sting of physical death, has been blunted by the promise of resurrection from the dead, which we see in 1 Corinthians 15, we need to understand that all it takes is repentance, confession. doesn't even require being baptized again. Baptism is basically a once and for all bearing of the old self. Paul had already been baptized. Go back and read Acts. That night, still late at night, when Ananias finally gave him the message, uh, that night he went and got baptized. He didn't wait till Sunday. He didn't wait till everything was right. He felt a need, so there must be a need. In fact, the writer of Hebrews reminds us, and, and this is my struggle with those who say, once saved, always saved. The writer of Hebrews says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, we have received the knowledge of truth. We believe it. If we go on deliberately sinning after that point, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. These verses, 1 to 4, however, do not refer solely to overcoming sin's power. When Paul says in verse 2 that the law of the Spirit of life has set you free, it's important to know that the verb set free is aorist, past tense, point in time. The act of liberation that sets us free from sin's penalty and power, the double cure, is a past event for every and any Christian. Specifically, in the context of Romans, it happened in our baptism, in which we received not only forgiveness of sins, justification through Christ's blood, but also the indwelling presence of the Spirit of life. Acts 2.38 pricked at the heart. They said to Peter and the apostles, what should we do? What did he say? He didn't say, well, here, let me, let me get this tract and go back to the last page and sign this page. He said, repent and be baptized. For, that's a word of purpose. You understand that, don't you? For the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. It's not confusing. And Jack, he notes in his commentary that in that event, the course of our lives as well as our ultimate destiny were totally recast or reprogrammed. The sin brings death system was replaced by the spirit gives life paradigm. I like that. The point of verses 3 and 4 is that by sending his own son, God made a way for us to be empowered. We are free from sin's power 
And though sin still lives in our bodies, we're not condemned thereby, verse 1, because we have been set free from the sin brings death principle, verse 2. How is it possible? Because God sent His Son to deliver the penalty of death in our place, verse 3. Therefore, satisfying the law's requirement for penalty and maintaining His own righteousness, verse 4. There it is, verses 1 to 4. So at the end of verse 4, he makes a transition to the main subject of this section on victory, namely the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on and says that what's happening is, and he does a contrast, there is an ongoing struggle that we face between the flesh and the Spirit. Now don't think for a minute that our fight against sin isn't going to be an intense struggle. Paul already pointed that out back in chapter 5, verses 7 to 25. But the, the good news, the gospel, the God's gospel he called it, is that Jesus has provided us with a means for victory through the gift of the indwelling Spirit. And I think, to be very honest, I think we in the Christian churches and churches of Christ have been very weak on teaching the importance of the indwelling Holy Spirit and what that means. We've been so afraid of emotionalism that we've said, oh no, we're not going to get into that charismatic stuff. And so a lot of people have no idea what the Holy Spirit's all about. You see, existing in or walking according to that's what that word means, the flesh or the spirit does not refer to any certain specific acts as such, but to our basic orientation. Am I more defined by the world in which I live or by God's Word? You see, it has nothing to do with whether my, my blue jeans are, have holes in them. Or a lot of other stupid stuff that I've heard people say. Well, look, they're just patterning themselves after the world. I know some people who dress perfectly, who live horribly. And I know some people that I probably would never dress like that who live beautiful lives for the Lord. It's not about any specific acts that we're doing. It's about our orientation. Who am I allowing myself to be subject to? The Spirit and God in His Word or, as Paul will say in chapter 12 when we get there, the patterns do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed. <clears throat> you see, it's someone whose whole being, both body and soul, is basically controlled by the sinful inclination, such as food, comfort, pleasure, Anytime we allow ourselves to be controlled by something other than God, 
We are living according to the flesh. So as we've been focusing, and we will focus throughout the year, our, our whole attempt as a church and as Christians should be to help people to obtain freedom from the struggles they're having over whatever the addiction might be. On the other hand, a person existing in or walking according to the Spirit is someone whose life is oriented around and determined by the law of the Spirit of life. It's someone who's committed to Spirit-inspired Scripture as his or her authoritative moral and spiritual comfort compass. And by that, because I had this conversation about four weeks ago right here in town. Oh, you don't use the King James Version of 1609? <laughs> no. Currently I'm using the English Standard Version. I've used the New International Version. Um, I hate to tell you this, but I'm transitioning. My preference now seems to be the New Revised Standard Version, the NRSV. Although there is no translation that's perfect. You understand that, don't you? Paul didn't walk around with a King James in his hand. It's when we are allowing Scripture to be our authoritative moral and spiritual compass. And it's when we are committed to using the Spirit's power to live the lifestyle that's prescribed. And it's not going to be easy. In the last six months, I have given my business card to probably four or five people and said, do me a favor. When you're struggling, I don't care if it's three o'clock in the morning. Call me and I'll be there. I won't just answer the phone and say, well, I'm sleeping right now and I'll get with you in the morning. I'll get out of bed, I'll put my clothes on and I will meet you somewhere. So that we can do face to face and you can see that I'm being sincere. And that it's not just cliches and words and platitudes. Addictions are hard to overcome. And we need brothers and sisters in Christ who are also cripples willing to lean on us as another cripple so that we both are able to stand up. So beginning with verse 9, he begins a personal application to the Roman Christians and Christians everywhere. And his point is this. Despite the law of sin and death that continues to work in and through your as yet unredeemed bodies, and despite the reality of your continuing struggle against its enslaving power, you don't need to despair. For God has blessed us in that we have been given, you and I have been given a grace second only to the gift of justification. And that is the grace that we can have by victory through the Spirit. 
The first gift of grace was that Paul shared was the gift of justification through Christ's blood. But now he demonstrates that we are actually given a second gift of grace. The indwelling Holy Spirit Himself, His very presence within you, gives you all the resources you need for victory over flesh now and for ultimate victory over death in the future. You understand, don't you, that chapters 1 to 7 have said very little at all about the Holy Spirit. Because Paul has been setting the table. We are sinners who are struggling. But if we accept Christ, chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, by submitting to baptism and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, then although we will still struggle with sin, we can have victory. The Spirit is in us. And we're in the Spirit. Christ is in us. And we're in Christ. Now, I don't, I don't logically understand all that, to be honest with you. But I accept it because it's what my Bible tells me. And if Christ is in you, here is where you now stand. First, your body is dead because of sin. I, I say this and I mean it. I'm not afraid of death. Chauncey already died. I died many years ago. I'm not afraid of physically dying. I view it as simply going to sleep and waking up at some point, whether immediately or after a long period of dream sleep, and I don't understand all that either. But going to sleep and waking up in God's arms. A transition. And that's why I've shared with my family, and I'll share with you as a congregation, I will not be going through any extraordinary, complicated medical procedures to keep this body alive if they tell me something seriously is wrong with it. I'll say, come Lord Jesus. See, we still have this body of death. That's a part of the bad news. But there is also some very good news. Your spirit is alive and or has life because of righteousness. And the most difficult question here is whether Paul's use of the spirit means the human spirit or the Holy Spirit. But whichever is intended, the other is still true. And it's actually present by implication. If Paul is saying the Spirit is life, since this is in contrast with the body is dead, then we must understand that the Spirit's first and best gift of life was the life He gave to our spirits in the act of regeneration. If Paul is saying the Spirit is alive, then we must understand that the source of this life is the Holy Spirit. For example... Paul would write to Titus in chapter 3, verses 4 and 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, baptism, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
You see, either way, the Holy Spirit is the source of our power over sin and our ability to stand against its attacks. And this is the main point. That we have victory because of the Holy Spirit given to us upon our baptism, dwelling with us, and guiding us to truth if we open ourselves to the Spirit's guidance. So here's my challenge. As we commit ourselves to, obe- to being obedient to God's Word, it's a challenge to live victoriously as a dying and body and a living spirit. These are the words of John Stott. That the Christian is a combination of a dying body and a living spirit. My doctor told me that. Has your doctor told you that? Mine did. Mine told me, sorry Chauncey, but several years ago your body started dying faster than it was creating new life. It's a reality. More cells are dying on a daily basis in our bodies than are being rebirthed. Death has more opportunities than it did back when I was pre-30 when there were more cells growing than dying. So in verse 11, Paul writes, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Paul has already established that the Spirit of God dwells in all who exist according to the Spirit, verse 9. Thus the word if does not suggest uncertainty, but establishes the basis of our hope regarding the resurrection of our bodies. It's the word since. Kind of like if then, since then. And notice how this clause reflects, as I said earlier, the threefold nature of God. God raised Jesus Christ and gave us the Holy Spirit so that we could live. And it's significant that our promised rescue from the body of sin and death does not consist merely of physical death and freedom from bodily existence as such, as many pagan religions teach. According to the Bible, physical death itself is something to be rescued from. And the human spirit was not designed to exist apart from the body. There is no spirit, soul, we're not ghosts in heaven. We have resurrected bodies. And so we are told, Not that we're going to heaven, but a new heaven and a new earth coming down out of heaven from God with the dwelling place of God being with man. God dwelling with us, wiping every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. Read it for yourself. Revelation 21 verses 1 to 4. So now that we exist by the Spirit, don't we owe it to Him to live up to the potential that He provides? And so here's my question for you this morning. Can you honestly, sincerely sing with me 
and feel the victory. I was sinking deep in sin. Far from the peaceful shores. Very deeply stained within. Seeking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. And from the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. We'll sing that in just a second. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning.